Tonight's talk is about understanding and kindness. I'd like to start with a quote from the time of the Buddha, and there was a religious man named Jata who was offering this question to the Buddha. It may be a question that you recognize from your own heart. His question was, The inner tangle and the outer tangle, this generation is entangled in a tangle. So I ask of the Buddha this question, who succeeds in disentangling this tangle? And the Buddha replied, when a wise one trained in ethical conduct develops heart and understanding, then as a spiritual seeker, ardent and wise, he or she succeeds in disentangling this tangle. So tonight I want to talk about disentangling the tangle, the tangle within our hearts and our minds, and the tangle with our lives. And there are several places that the Buddha touches upon in this quote. He talks about heart and understanding and ethical conduct. So let's look at these three areas and how they apply to disentangling our tangles. As we sit here in meditation together, we're developing minds that can cultivate understanding. We've been talking over these past two days about ways of being with our experience, observing our own experience in order to develop understanding understanding about ourselves, and understanding about life. So, for example, we've talked about dealing with pain. It seems pretty uneventful or um, not very very much fun. (laughs) But from watching how we work with pain in our bodies, we can actually learn a lot about how we deal with unpleasant circumstances in our lives. We see how we shut off when we're in pain. We see how we become disconnected. And I would say if we can't be with a headache, then we can't be with our lives at that moment. And then we won't be able to open to the joys of our lives either. So we can learn a lot from working with pain. And we've talked about working with thoughts. If we don't understand how to work with thoughts, We really suffer in life. We create these worlds, uh, very imaginative worlds, very detailed and often painful little universes, and then we inhabit them, and we believe they're true, and we suffer. One of my favorite quotes is by Mark Twain. He said, I've experienced many disfortunes in my life, most of which never happened. (laughs) And that's kind of what we do. (laughs) We create these disfortunes in our mind because we don't understand how to work with thought. We don't understand how to get disentangled. So that's something that we're learning here. And each time that you are caught in thought and you let it go, you come back to your primary object, your home base, you're learning about disentangling from thought. You're learning that we don't have to be seduced by our thoughts. 
And one very important thing I've learned about thoughts is that we don't have to believe them. You know, it's just um, absurd, some of the things that our minds come up with, and then we believe them. If you only leave here understanding that you don't have to believe your thoughts, you've learned a lot. They can come and they can go, but you don't have to believe them. So we've also been learning here about how to work with difficult emotions. And again, we're not trying to get rid of emotions. We're learning how to hold them gently and hold them with care. So can anger come up and we say, hello, anger, what's up? What are you about? And we learn to explore that feeling, to feel it fully, but not to get lost in it. One of the ways we do this is by experiencing emotions in our body. So for example, if anger comes up, we might feel what sensations we feel in the body that seem to correspond to anger. So we might feel heat or tightness. And then we look at what kind of thought patterns come up with emotions. So if we are feeling anger, we might have thoughts of revenge or or self-righteous thoughts about how very, very right we are and how very, very wrong the other person is. And so we do this with emotions. We explore them. How do they manifest in our minds? How do they manifest in our bodies? And we become friends with our emotional experience. It's, it's pretty radical. Most of us don't get much training. Michelle, I think, mentioned this yesterday. Most of us don't get much training in how to work with our emotions. And the strategies that we're usually taught are either to repress them or to drown in them, neither of which works very well. If we repress emotion, then it winds up leaking out anyway. And, uh, you know, if we repress anger, then we wind up being passive-aggressive or, you know, sneaky little stabs at people or things like that. Or we drown in it. If we drown in anger, we often act it out, and we create a lot of havoc in our lives, through our, um, usually through our speech, but maybe through our actions. So we're taking a third road with mindfulness meditation of just being with our emotions and feeling them in this moment. And practicing a radical acceptance of them. There's a poem by the um, Sufi poet Rumi called The Guest House, which I think demonstrates really nicely this acceptance of our emotional life as it comes and as it goes. This being human is a guest house. Every morning a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness, Some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all, even if they are a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture. Still, treat each guest honorably. He may be clearing you out for some new delight. The dark thought, the shame, the malice, meet them at the door laughing, and invite them in. Be grateful for whatever comes, because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. 
So whatever emotions come, can we meet them at the door laughing and invite them in? Through all of these experiences of working with pain and thought and emotion, what we're trying to do is develop wisdom or the understanding of life as it is and the ability to deal with life as it is with some sense of balance. As Michelle said last night, life is a mixture of pleasure and pain. And when it's pleasant, we want to hold on. And when it's painful, we want to push away. And this is where we suffer. It's the holding on and the pushing away. We wish that life was only pleasant, but that's just not the way it is. Even if we try our best to create the most favorable conditions, there is so much that we can't control. You couldn't make it cooler today. You can't make your loneliness not come up. You can't make a sitting pleasant. I'm sure you've tried. (laughs) Part of wisdom is realizing that life is always changing and we can't stop the flow. So if we look for peace in this world by trying to create perfect conditions, by trying to make things just right, we're always going to come up short because we can't stop the flow. So if we're running around trying to make things perfect, we're not going to know peace. We're not going to know rest. A quote by Sylvia Bornstein, a teacher from our sister uh, meditation center out west. If you pay attention for just five minutes, you know some very fundamental dharma. Things change. Nothing stays comfortable. Sensations come and go quite impersonally according to conditions, but not because of anything you do or think you do. uh, Changes come and go quite by themselves. In the first five minutes of paying attention, you learn that pleasant sensations lead to the desire that these sensations stay and that unpleasant sensations lead to the desire that they will go away. And both the attraction and the aversion amount to tension in the mind. Both are uncomfortable. So in the first minutes, you learn a big lesson about suffering, wanting things to be other than they are. Such a tremendous amount of truth to be learned by just closing your eyes and paying attention to bodily sensations. The Buddha said that freedom is about being able to be with life as it is. And this means that when something nice is happening, something pleasant, to be able to accept that it will end and to be able to be with that ending with grace. And this means that when something unpleasant is happening, to be able to open it to it and accept it as part of life. So it's really about learning to go with life as it is. When we struggle with life, when we try to hold on or push away, 
It's like canoeing upstream against the current of life. It's hard work. But when we accept life as it is, when we accept that both pleasant and unpleasant things will happen, and we go with that, it's like enjoying the current, the ride down the river in the canoe with the current, seeing the scenery come and go, and relaxing into the ride. A student once asked Zen teacher Steve Allen, if you were given a wish-fulfilling jewel, what would you wish for? Allen replied, to stop wishing. Why did he answer like this? Because he saw, or he knew, that wanting things to be different than they are is a state of contraction. It's a state of clenching and that this is what closes us off to life, closes us off to being fully present and alive, and this is what makes us suffer. So we slowly learn to rest in things as they are, but it's slow, it takes time. This journey of transformation doesn't happen overnight. We live in a society that emphasizes um, instant everything. In fact, they once got a letter here at this uh, meditation center addressed to the Instant Meditation Society. I worried about that person (laughs) in case they came here and were, were expecting some instant results. I think you all already know that um, it's not instant that we've really chosen a lifelong journey here. The Dalai Lama uh, was once talking to Westerners, and he said something like, you know, you Westerners, you always want everything so fast. You always want to know the fastest way to do everything. He said, perhaps a little change every decade is enough. That's uh, acceptance of this journey and the fact that as humans, we don't change quite as fast as we'd like to. It takes time. So we have to have patience with ourselves. I like to say that we have to have infinite patience with ourselves. There's a quote by Rilke that, for me, really um, reminds me of this. He said, Rilke is a German poet. He said, have patience with all that is unresolved in your heart and learn to love the questions themselves. Have patience with all that is unresolved in your heart and learn to love the questions themselves. That's what I see meditation as, learning to love the questions of our heart, learning to love everything in our heart. So as we undertake this journey of understanding of wisdom, we stretch ourselves. We stretch what we're willing and able to be with. And as we do this, we make our lives larger and our hearts bigger, and we can hold more. 
So that's understanding. And what about heart? Another part of this quote of disentangling the tangle. When we speak about heart in this practice, we're usually speaking about love and compassion. The meditation that you've been taught the last two nights at 645 is about this other part of the teachings, this development of a soft and gentle heart, this development of a kind and open heart, This quality of love that we're trying to develop is this heart that wishes well, this heart that holds deepest wishes for ourselves and others of happiness and peace and safety. It's a heart that's open and accepts ourselves and others as we are. And the compassion that we develop is this heart that's able to be with suffering and care about it and not be overwhelmed by it. So as we work with our own loneliness or uh, anger or depression, we develop this ability to care, care about ourselves and others, this gentle heart of compassion. The beauty of these qualities of metta and compassion is that they emphasize our connectedness to others. When we develop this heart of metta, we see that we're really all the same. Just as we want to be happy, others want to be happy. And just as we wish happiness for ourselves, we wish happiness for others. We see and feel our shared humanity we realize how deeply interconnected we are. So we develop these qualities of love and compassion by starting with ourselves, learning to develop this sense of kindness with ourselves. So when we find that we're struggling, can we turn towards ourselves with a sense of care, with a sense of gentleness, with a sense of kindness? We can't always, but we can practice developing this ability to do that. It's really about learning to accept ourselves as we are. There's another poem that I have that uh, I really enjoy that describes this kind of quality of accepting ourselves as we are. A quality that that isn't really emphasized in our culture. This is a poem by Ryokana, Uh, Japanese poet, Zen poet. He was known for being um, very gentle and very accepting and very much at peace with himself. Today's begging is finished. At the crossroads, I wander by the side of the Buddhist shrine talking with some children. Last year, a foolish monk. This year, no change. There's this deep acceptance of himself as he is. This year, no change. So we develop these qualities of of kindness towards ourselves, of gentleness towards ourselves, of compassion for ourselves, 
And this naturally manifests in our outer lives through kindness, through wishing to be kind to others. The Dalai Lama said, my true religion is kindness. I really like that. He says, deep down we must have a real affection for each other, a clear realization or recognition of our shared human status. By going deeply into ourselves and understanding ourselves deeply, we connect with our humanity. We see how very human we are. We see both our strengths and our weaknesses. We see our happiness. We see our sorrow. And when we're able to do this with ourselves, we're able to connect with this in others. And it draws out the deepest desire to be kind and to take care, not to cause others suffering. There's a poem by, uh, hmm, can't remember, I think Naomi Shahib Nye, uh, that expresses this connection between understanding deeply our own selves and our wish to be kind in the world. She wrote this poem when she was traveling in South America, so you may, um, there's some references to things happening in South America, and that's why. Before you know what kindness really is, you must lose things. Feel the future dissolve in a moment like salt in a weakened broth. What you held in your hand, what you counted and carefully saved, all this must go so you know how desolate the landscape can be between the regions of kindness. How you ride and ride, thinking the bus will never stop. The passengers eating maize and chicken will stare out the window forever. Before you learn the tender gravity of kindness, you must travel where the Indian in a white poncho lies dead by the side of the road. You must see how this could be you, how he too was someone who traveled through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. Before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow, You must speak to it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of the cloth. Then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore. Only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day to mail letters and purchase bread. Only kindness that raises its head from the crowd of the world to say, It is I you have been looking for, and that goes with you everywhere, like a shadow or a friend. Before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. And then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore. It's only kindness that makes sense anymore. So we wish to be kind in this world from this understanding of our shared humanity and the care that comes from our hearts. The third part of this quote that I wanted to address, living an ethical life, is this manifestation of kindness in the world, living a life of non-harming or a dedication to non-harming 
like when we talked about the precepts that first night. This is one of the most precious gifts we can give to ourselves and to others. Lay Buddhists around the world commit to the five precepts that we took that first night, which are considered a foundation of non-harming. We're lucky because monks commit to 227, so we get off a little easy with only five. It's kind of curious because our modern civilization doesn't seem to appreciate much the importance of ethics or of living a life of integrity. You only need to watch TV for one night to see that uh, dishonesty, uh, sexual misconduct, harm, violence, all of that is not only accepted but even glorified. But in Buddhism, we say that it matters how we live our lives. It matters if we live our lives creating havoc or if we live our lives being kind. It matters not only for ourselves, but also for others. Charlotte Joko Beck, one of my favorite Buddhist teachers, says, Practice can be stated very simply. It is moving from a life of hurting myself and others to a life of not hurting myself and others. We're talking about both myself and others. We're equal here. So understanding how we live an ethical life, how that alleviates suffering for ourselves, is understanding the law of karma. The law of karma is that basically we reap what we sow. If you plant apple seeds, you're going to get apples. If you plant hot peppers, you're going to get hot peppers. (laughs) So basically, if we run around uh, uh, acting in ways that cause harm and that hurt people, That's going to come back to us in some form or the other. And if we run around uh, acting kind and uh, uh, spreading generosity and kindness in the world, that, that, that will come back to us in some form. I like to say that if we live our life like soap operas, like people in soap operas, we're going to have minds like soap opera stars. Um, You know, they always seem to be very distressed and uh, distraught and um, upset. and uh, <laughs> But this is basically because they live their lives um, creating harm. I think if you wanted to write a soap opera script, what you could do is take the five precepts and see how many times you could break them. And then you would have a soap opera. <laughs> Remembering that the five precepts are um, harming life or taking life. Uh, taking that which is not given or stealing, Um, sexual misconduct, causing harm through our sexuality, Um, harmful speech, and uh, using intoxicants and drugs that cloud the mind. We also see in our meditation that if we engage in actions that cause harm, that they weigh on us. It's not unlikely that sometime this weekend that you remembered something that you did that you didn't feel so good about, and you see that the mind gets heavy then, or the mind gets turbulent and restless remembering these things. That's karma right there. That's reaping the result right there of your action. 
On the other hand, if you did something kind recently or generous recently, it's possible that you remember that this weekend and you saw that it made your mind light. It makes us happy to remember the good things that we do. And again, there's a, that's the direct result, the karma of your action. We do things that are kind, we feel happy. And when we feel happy and our minds aren't filled with regret, we can meditate more easily. The mind will be quiet more easily. Most people, if they meditate for a long period of time, or, you know, any period over of time, they, they realize this, that if we wish to go deeply in our meditation, we have to live our lives in a way that doesn't um, cause turbulence. And usually that means living our lives with more kindness and um, with a commitment to trying not to harm. And so the precepts um, that we are given, these five precepts, they're not like rules. They're really just guidelines to say, watch out, this is a place where it's easy to get hurt or to cause suffering. And most of us know that from our own experience. You know, we know how we can feel wounded by others' words or we can wound with our words. We know that when somebody uses or takes our stuff, we don't feel so great. All of us know the harm that comes from uh, not respecting people's relationships and um, in the area of sexuality. So they're just places to explore, to bring our attention, to help increase our mindfulness about how we live our lives. The other thing the Buddha said, which is very interesting, he said, if you are going to break the precepts, do it mindfully. Which is interesting because we usually think in this culture if we're going to do something we shouldn't do, we should kind of pretend we're not doing it or space out or not really pay attention. But the Buddha said do it mindfully. And the reason he said this is is because if you do it mindfully, you have a chance to learn from it. So if you're out doing walking meditation and mosquitoes really bugging you and you decide that you're going to kill it, do it mindfully. See how it feels. Really experience killing that mosquito. Now, how do you feel afterwards? What happens to your heart? Pay attention. Or if you're going to talk about somebody behind their back, pay attention to how that feels. Now, this is how we learn. It's by watching. The good news about this talk about karma and planting seeds is that in any moment we can start anew, that any moment we have a chance to plant seeds of happiness for our, for our future. It's a very hopeful kind of understanding of life. Every moment we have a chance to plant happy seeds that will bring us happy fruit. So most of us aren't breaking the precepts in in big ways, but it's interesting to look at them more subtly and and in this way increase our understanding of not harming. Like, for example, with not killing things, I have a garden, and um, I get bugs every year, and so I have to figure out how to deal with the bugs, and I've tried a lot of different strategies. I've killed them. At some point, that became too painful for me. I didn't like how it felt. So I would transport them 
you know, put them in a little jar and take them somewhere else where they could live and not eat my food. Um, I plant extra because uh, then I don't mind. I, I, I feel pretty okay if they take up to maybe a third of what I plant. <laughs> um, I've, I've tried um, not planting certain things that they eat a lot. Like um, at one point I had this big squash bug attack. And squash bugs, they just got so out of control, I couldn't, like, catch them all, and I, I didn't feel good about killing them. So um, I quit growing squash for a while. And then three years ago, I moved to a new house and had a new garden, and the squash bugs haven't found me yet. So I've had three years of squash, and <laughs> we'll, we'll see how long it takes them to catch up with me. But these, are, you know, these aren't easy decisions to figure out what you're going to do. But what I love is I love the challenge, you know? The challenge of looking and trying to understand. Or like borrowing things. The second precept, not taking what's not given. Last week, um, I had an experience with this. I was teaching a different, a 16-day retreat here, and they put out pasta primavera for lunch. And um, I wanted more veggies. So I found myself picking through the salad, you know, to get more veggies than, than pasta. And then I kind of reflected. I thought, you know, that's really about the second precept because the salad was given to me to be eaten as it was, not, you know, which that's... And so when I was trying to get extra vegetables, I was really taking what was not given to me. And I also could be causing suffering for the people who followed me who wouldn't get as many vegetables because I took them. You know, it's, it's just this level of sensitivity we can develop to our actions in the world and how they affect others. Or like talking about other people, you know, the speech precept, which is really hard for most people. That's, most people claim it's the hardest one. Um, I tried a period with a friend, another Buddhist friend, where we made a commitment not to talk about anybody who wasn't present. It um, cuts down on conversation significantly. <laughs> but it's really interesting to explore that, you know? And what I found with this friend of mine, actually, he was my boyfriend at that time, is that it was really interesting what it did for intimacy between the two of us, because really all we had to talk about was ourselves. And we had to share ourselves rather than kind of waste our energy talking about other people. It was really interesting. Or this is an interesting one, the, the pre- precept against sexual misconduct. What about flirting? Does that have the potential to cause suffering to others? What if you're flirting with somebody and you're not really serious and that person thinks you are? You know, these are just, there's no set rules, you see. These are just things to think about and to develop our our care in the world. Or how about the the precept about not taking intoxicants that cloud the mind? How about looking at everything we put in our minds? I mean, we live in a fairly toxic society, and um, there's a lot of junk we can absorb. I um, found this out very directly the first long retreat I did here at IMS in 1984, I was uh, 24 years old, and the summer before, I didn't have anything to do. I was kind of in between activities and didn't really want to get a job or settle down because I was coming here to meditate for an indeterminate amount of time. 
So I was staying at my dad's, and I took to watching um, a couple of soap operas because I didn't have anything to do. That's how I knew so much about soap operas. Um, <laughs> so I watched all my children in general hospital. And, um, <laughs> you know, I was bored. I didn't have anything to do. So um, I came here, and guess what went through my mind for the first three weeks of my retreat? all about General Hospital and all my children. You know, I was like, oh, I wonder if such and such is still with such and such. Or did she tell him that she was having an affair with that person? Or I hope this happened. Or It was um, an eye-opener. Because <laughs> what I realized is that what I put in my mind stays there, you know? It, it, an imprint stays, you know? And I vowed never to watch another soap opera because that wasn't really what I wanted to have in my mind. I've pretty much kept it, that vow. Just a um, couple, well, one time I was a hospice volunteer and I was working with a woman who was dying of AIDS and she liked to watch soap operas with me, so I watched them with her. You know, sometimes you have to break your vows. <laughs> or like, well, let me move on. <laughs> it's getting late. <laughs> So the other side of this ethics is um, is not causing harm is one side, but the other side is of um, being of service in this world. You know, trying to alleviate suffering where it's happening. We talk a lot in Buddhism about acceptance, and that you know about accepting our experience as it is. But that isn't a passive acceptance. That doesn't mean that we don't try to alleviate suffering where we see it. That we don't try to make life better for ourselves and for others. So, um, you know, the positive side of the precepts could be, um, you know, the first one, not harming. It could be protecting life or enhancing the quality of life for others. In um, honor of the Dalai Lama's birthday, I'm going to read a little story about the Dalai Lama doing that. It's his birthday today. I think you all know that. He says, last year we dismantled several large poultry farms in the Tibetan settlements of South India out of compassion. It happened like this. One day I went to visit a small lake to offer food to the fish that we had previously freed there. On the way back, someone said, by the way, did you see the poultry farm? All of a sudden I had a vision where I saw large groups of chickens marching along carrying banners on which was written, The Dalai Lama not only saves fishes, but even feeds them. What does he do for us poor chickens? I felt terribly sad and sorry for the chickens. The next day, I discussed the problem with the relevant officials. I said, if for economic reasons there are no alternatives, then I have nothing to say. But if there's an alternative, please think seriously about dismantling these poultry farms. It seems they agreed, and within a few weeks, about 8,000 chickens were released in our settlement, another 1 or 2,000 in another settlement, and some more in another settlement. We no longer raise poultry in our settlements. I was deeply moved by my people's response and promised to live for at least another 20 years. I said this under the influence of my emotion. It was not a prediction. So protecting life. You know, the second precept about um, not taking what is not given, you know, the positive side is being generous, learning to uh, share what we have. In fact, 
That's a huge part of my practice this year is really about just cultivating generosity. I wasn't, let's just say I was raised with a scarcity mentality. Not um, physically, you know, I had enough to eat, but <laughs> uh, just grew up thinking that uh, life is scarcity. And so I really have to consciously work on developing generosity. It doesn't come easy to me, but I've been doing this recently, and it's just so much fun, I've discovered. You know, it's really fun to give what I have and to share what I have. So this is a practice that's really related to to our um our, our ethical conduct and our non-harming attitude. I remember when I was a child, I went through a period where I would try to do one kind thing a day without the person knowing who did it. And I just, it was a really um, fun practice, too, you know, sharing kindness, but anonymously. So you can see with all of these precepts, there's just these positive ways that we can develop them, too, that spreads happiness in the world. So when you leave here, if you find it hard to keep meditating, you can't get on your cushion every day, even though we may suggest that you keep meditating, this is an alternative practice, is, um, and a very fruitful practice is working with the precepts. You know, you're developing mindfulness through your care with your conduct. So working with our uh, minds, developing heart and understanding, and working with our actions in this world, we find increased spaciousness and peace, and slowly we disentangle the tangle. I'd like to um, end with a quote that I just love, which uh, describes this process of opening to life. It's from the book called After the Ecstasy, Then the Laundry by uh, Jack Cornfield. In many ways, the spiritual transformation of the past decades is different than I had imagined. I'm still the same quirky person with much the same style and ways of being. So that on the outside, I'm not that amazingly transformed, enlightened person that I had hoped to become but there's a big transformation inside. Years of working with my feelings and family patterns and temper have softened the way I hold them all. In the struggle to know and deeply accept my life, it has been transformed and my love has grown larger. If my life before was like a crowded garage where I kept bumping into the furniture and judging myself, Now it's like I've moved into an airplane hangar with the doors left open. I've got the same old stuff there, yet it doesn't limit me before, like before. I'm the same, yet now I'm free to move about, even to fly. Let's sit for a minute. The inner tangle and the outer tangle. This generation is entangled in a tangle. 
And so I ask of the Buddha this question, who succeeds in disentangling this tangle? The Buddha replies, when a wise one, trained in ethical conduct, develops heart and understanding, then as a spiritual seeker, ardent and wise, he or she succeeds in disentangling this tangle.